Hello, Next Picture Show listeners. Here's a friendly reminder that if you enjoy the Next Picture Show, you'll really enjoy getting more Next Picture Show by subscribing to our Patreon. You can get our weekly newsletter for $3 a month and unlock bonus episodes for $5 a month. We're currently working on episodes about our favorite baseball movies, in the absence of baseball season, and about the TV we're catching up on during our quarantines. To subscribe to our Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. Very difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast dedicated to a classic film and how it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Keith Phipps, here with Scott Tobias. Hi, Scott. Hey, what's up? Uh, neither Genevieve Kosky nor Tasha Robinson are here tonight because they have turned into ghosts, but we hope to have them back soon. Instead, for the next two episodes in which we discuss films in which strangers have terrible experiences entering others' homes, we'll be joined by special guest Allison Wilmore, film critic at Vulture. Say hello, Allison. Hello, Allison. Ah, oh, there you go. So we kid, of course. Allison's no stranger since we've known her for years, and this is a sort of a homecoming since she used to co-host the film spotting spinoff, film spotting SVU. Uh, did you hear anything? No, what, no. What, I didn't hear anything. No, I didn't hear anything at all. Well, as I was saying, Allison used to host Film Spotting SVU with our friend Matt Singer, and I know we're not alone in missing that. Much. You had to hear that, right? No. Okay. As I was saying, it's great having Allison on the show, and you heard none of that, right? Right. I think that makes me the nervous, fearful Nell of this episode. Then, Allison Scott, do you have any dims on either of the other haunting roles you want to play? Oh, yeah. Russ Tamblin's character, Luke, all the way. Uh, majored in martinis? Absolutely. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Well, that you, you took me, you took my guy. You took my guy. He, he seems <laughs> le- the, he's the least haunted of the guy. Of, of he the absolutely guy. has the best POV, yeah. Scott, I'm still a bit too shaken to talk about our pairing. Can you tell listeners a bit about it? Sure. Shortly before hitting the Alps for The Sound of Music, director Robert Wise made a film set in the creepy, cramped interiors of a forbidding mansion. The Haunting, an adaptation of Shirley Jackson's The Haunting of Hill House, scripted by frequent collaborator Nelson Gidding. Set in New England, but filmed in England, the film chronicles a few eventful days in the career of a paranormal investigator who recruits three subjects who have had past experiences with the supernatural to spend a few nights in a reputedly haunted house to see what, if anything, happens. Spoiler, things happen. That's this week, and then next week we'll stay in the land of Shirley Jackson to discuss Shirley, the new film by Josephine Decker. Adapting a novel by Susan Scarf Merrill, the film imagines a different sort of visit to a creepy house via the story of a young academic and his wife who take up lodging in the home of Shirley Jackson and her husband, literary critic Stanley Edgar Hyman. There are two different stories, both rooted in the same discomforting world of Jackson's macabre fiction. We'll be back after the break. The dead will walk, and you, unbeliever, will scream unheard. Stop it! The haunting. The haunting. What do we really know of that other world of hauntings, of apparitions in the night, of the sinister powers of darkness? The Haunting was produced and directed by Robert Wise, the brilliant producer of West Side Story, and stars Julie Harris, Claire Bloom, Richard Johnson, Russ Tamblin. You cannot deny terror. 
You cannot look the other way. You have to face the supernatural, face the chilling mysteries of forces you cannot understand or control when The Haunting holds you in its spell. The Haunting. The Haunting, like the novel it adapts, takes place in a famously spooky house, one that, as both the opening and closing note, has, quote, stood for 90 years and might stand for 90 more. And as the narration also notes, such places are like, quote, an undiscovered country waiting to be explored. That sounds inviting, but it doesn't mean its explorers will like what they find. For some, it's a lark, and Hillhouse's history of strange deaths and other instances of misfortune are part of charming local lore. Even a man of science, like Dr. John Markway, played by Richard Johnson, treats his trip into the undiscovered country as an adventure. However serious his intent in gathering together a group of visitors touched by the otherworldly to spend the night at the Hill House, he keeps a light demeanor, even when dealing with strange noises, cold spots, and other seemingly firm evidence of the spirit world. For the psychic Theodora, played by Claire Bloom, and especially Luke, played by Russ Tamblin, it's all kind of a gas, at least at first. But for Nell, played by Julie Harris, the trip to Hill House is both terrifying and liberating. Sometimes it's both at once. On the film's audio commentary, screenwriter Nelson Gidding recalls approaching the film as a ghost story, only to change his mind after he'd already written the screenplay, reckoning instead that it was actually about a woman having a nervous breakdown. So he took his thoughts to Jackson to see if he belatedly cracked the code of his story. I think this is not a ghost story at all, he told her, offering his other reading to see if she'd verify her authorial intent. She couldn't. No, Jackson replied, but it's a damn good idea. Jackson wasn't above teasing to get at a deeper truth. Her most famous story, The Lottery, attracted more letters than any other article in the history of The New Yorker. Later, she claimed that most of her readers wanted to know where such lotteries were held so they could attend one. So was it possible she was playing dumb with getting, given that The Haunting is, at least in part, obviously the story of a woman's nervous breakdown? Eleanor arrives at Hill House freighted with guilt about her mother's death, but also freed from her maternal obligations for the first time in her life. Whether she'll fly free or fall remains an open question for much of the film, which finds her excited by what she calls a vacation and forming complicated new bonds with both Theodora and Dr. Marquay. But it also drives her to the brink of insanity. Others hear the frightening noises made by the house and sense the same malevolent presence, but that presence also seems to target Nell in her fragile state. A different sort of story might have played with ambiguity, suggesting it's all in Nell's head. The film itself plays as if it's beyond the question, allowing the supernatural and the psychological to live side by side and play off one another, even as it offers no visual evidence of the supernatural. Early in the film, Dr. Marquez notes Hill House's unusual architecture, one with odd angles and unexpected junctions, qualities that make it solid enough to stand for decades but unsettling in its very construction. The film's a bit like that, too. Shooting in widescreen black and white, Weiss used a still-in-development lens that created some distorted images. Similarly, as a narrative, the pieces all fit together, but by design, they don't always sit comfortably next to one another. A method actress who isolated herself from the rest of the cast, particularly Bloom, later explained to her co-star that she had to hate her during filming, Harris is disturbingly convincing as a woman who's having a much different, far more intense experience than those around her. Nell's companions think they're in a Charles Adams cartoon. Nell knows they're in a far darker sort of story, one that threatens to swallow her whole. The undiscovered country can make permanent residence of some of those who set out to explore its shores. I've set dinner on. Thank heaven somebody's here. My name's Eleanor Lance. I'm so glad you're here. I'm Theodora, just Theodora. 
What about this crazy house? I'm right next door. We have a connecting bath. This one used to be the embalming room, I bet. It was terrible being here alone. I set dinner on the dining room sideboard. Where's Markway? I thought he'd have been here before anyone else. You serve yourselves. I clear up in the morning. Have you known Dr. Markway now? I have breakfast ready at nine. No, I've never met him. I don't stay after six. Not after it begins to get dark. My only contact with him has been our correspondence about the, uh, quote, experiment. Unquote. I leave before the dark comes, so there won't be anyone around if you need help. No one can hear you if you scream in the night. Isn't that so, Mrs. Dudley? No one lives any nearer than town. No one will come any nearer than that. In the night. In the dark. So just briefly, I first saw The Haunting years ago as a, like a teenage horror fan and I, I reading on the genre and, and I was I read about this film that was so terrifying, even though you never saw anything, any, any of the monsters or anything supernatural in it. And, you know, even though it's like a crappy VHS version of the film, I, uh, I my experience actually bore that out. How about everyone else? Wh- which, what's your history with this film? I love this film. It's one of my favorite horror films of all time. And I saw it either rented version or maybe caught it on a movie channel, but it definitely scared the crap out of me at a kind of tender age. And then I I didn't watch it again for a long time. So it was really interesting to revisit it recently and feel like it very much holds up. Well, I mean, for me, you know, it starts with me seeing Rooftops by Robert Wise. And then I I see that movie and I'm like, I have to go back and see everything Robert (laughs) Wise ever did. And I know that's not really how it went. Yeah. So The Haunting, I, I, you know, again, saw many years ago as probably, gosh, two or three decades ago uh, for the first time and then caught up again recently for the show. What surprised me about it is I, I remembered it as purely a haunted house movie, hmm. something very simple with lots of creaky floors. And I remember the door sort of pulsating, you know, in and out. And I certainly remember the, the, the look of the film quite a bit. What I didn't remember is that it really is like your intro said it is it's uh, it's not really that it really is about this nervous breakdown and there's there's this um intense psychological component to it that's dominant and, and so that was sort of the surprise to see it on on this viewing is uh how much energy was devoted to that element of the film as opposed to the horror elements of the film which kind of arrive more in fits and starts yeah, there are really only a few set pieces, but there are such powerful set pieces that you don't forget them, like Harris and Bloom you know, sh- sheltering together in, in the bedroom, the staircase sequence, that one shock with, with uh, the doctor's wife's head popping out, which was just scared the heck yeah. out of me the first time yeah. I saw this, still, and even that's now still, it's... That still plays. It's so yeah. good. Yeah, and also the, the wall, the face in the wall, and her mm. whole, thinking she's holding Theo's hand, but she's not. You know, yeah. she the lights turn on and she's actually across the room. I think that those sequences are certainly handled so well. But for me, I always remember this as a psychological horror film. I think it's just, it's so claustrophobic in its interiority in the way it drops you inside of Eleanor's really not very stable state of mind. You know, I just remember all of those voiceovers, just all of those, you know, I'm expected, I'm expected. Uh, like, like I just, mm-hmm. that was so lodged in my mind. It's the part of the movie that is definitely the most disturbing to me. She's such an uncomfortable, disorienting person to kind of spend so much time inside. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I've kind of forgotten how much she is the focal character, and I've forgotten how much of it she narrates as well. The voiceover that you mentioned really does intrude quite a bit in ways that, that make it more unsettling because, 
you're already in this disturbing place, but you are, as you pointed out, Allison, you're with a very disturbing character as well. God, it, and it, it's, it reminds you of how much did Stanley Kubrick take from this film for The Shining? Mm. It's it's crazy. I mean, just just a bit, you know, I mean, because you think you think about, you know, the knocking at The Shining is like, well, he's kind of crazy going into the place, right? And here you have, you know, she's, you know, narrating along and she's driving to Hill House and, and uh, you know, the narration is some of the most disturbing stuff in the movie. And she hasn't even arrived there yet. Yes. Um, and, and then there's this idea, too, of of this place being like a destination for her and something that doesn't ultimately frighten her but makes her feel like she belongs and that she doesn't want to leave um and again that's that's sort of a shining journey as well i mean not again not that we're doing this podcast on the shining but i found it was interesting that the way that the two kind of um mesh because i think the ideas are similar and they both have a similar kind of psychological bend to them right it's as you know that idea that she this character has always belonged here the whole time like there was an inevitability in in the journey like uh they were just the rest of their life was just like fooling around before they ended up where they inevitably were destined to be yeah Yeah. i I want to talk about in context of haunted house movies because it it does it you know if you look at the progression it does seem pretty revolutionary i mean it's definitely not the classic uh i mean it's an old dark house but it's not the classic you know ghosts in the attic sort of film i think the fact that you just don't see anything it's all suggestion it's all i mean you see the bulging door as the closer you come to like a physical manifestation of this the spirit that seems like a pretty remarkable you know way to take the genre or subgenre i guess yeah, I think, you know, the house has to be a character in a story like this because mm-hmm. there it almost it has its own personality really even if a lot of that is just the projection of this character's like kind of trauma and distress on it. But I think especially in this case there's just so much about how the house is allowed to be atmospheric on screen, the way the shadows are shot. Like, even when you can kind of feel them patching together, like, the vastness of the space, like, when they get lost in the hallway, I do feel like you're kind of like, how did that, how did you get lost in this house? Mm. It definitely, it gives you that sense of, like, that you're kind of unmoored in space, that not all of these rooms link up together in a consistent way. And I do think... That, that does also evoke The Shining, a kind of proto-Shining, but I think that it's also its own thing. It's this house that's very creepy, but also a little tacky. It's almost funny, I think. You can see the characters registering it as almost funny in how kind of over-the-top broke this house is. Yeah, I mean, I think that comes out when they finally go into the nursery and kind of take a look around. But yeah, I wonder, too, to the extent to which... Uh, you know, Robert Wise edited Citizen Kane, and the interiors, again, sort of have a Xanadu-like quality, that very high contrast, black and white, and just this large, imposing, haunted, empty space that's so much that's so much larger than the characters in it. I mean, the difference, of course, I think is the walls are quite literally kind of closing in at times. I mean, it is claustrophobic in a way that Xanadu is not. Xanadu is vast. This is a, this is a, a, you know, a man who is just surrounded by this immense space that he can't possibly, but both of them have that kind of spare lonely quality to that, to them that, that, um, you know, a- amplifies in this case, uh, the main character's own feelings. I mean, there's, a, there's such a sadness to what 
I mean, she's destined to, you know, she's fulfilling a kind of destiny and, and finding her way home. But what is that home? You know, and what mm-hmm. is that destiny? It, it's such a sad place for her to be and to feel like she belongs, uh, which is utterly alone and isolated and haunted by hostile spirits. So, uh, okay, and babble. What do you? Do you have something to say? <laughs> I mean, we can talk about the way guilt just trails the house and her this feeling that you know her mother is, has died and probably you know all this accumulation of, of you know horrible feelings bleeding up to that death you know she's finally released from it and here she is and, and finds herself in another kind of prison in a way or not i mean it's such an ambiguous read I, she's just such a tough character to read because in some ways it is maybe it is her destiny to be there yeah i think she's also just you know this character whose life is so curtailed we know that she's basically lost her entire adulthood to caring for her mother and then is carrying around this guilt for the one time she didn't answer, right? Mm-hmm. That that was the time that her mother died. And then there's that echo in what happens in the house. And, you know, one of the things that I find so interesting about the house is that it's also, it's, it's kind of legend is not based around any one character. Even It's not even based around the man who built it, right? Like he kind of becomes an absence. It's a series of women who kind of live this like sad set of lives of just like dying tragically or you know resenting care like being stuck there this feeling of like owning the house but also being trapped there that feels like it really kind of ends up paralleling Eleanor's desire to have a space of her own but at the same time kind of this she's sort of retreating into what's familiar in this very you know outsized way Given the strong psychological element of the film, is there any way to read it as not a haunted house movie? Because I don't think there is. If it's an illusion, it's an illusion they all share. I think that's a really interesting choice to make in terms of presenting the story. Yeah, I think we need to take on face value that this is a haunted house. Is that what you're mm-hmm. Right, asking? exactly. Another film would have played with that idea that it's all in her head. But I think, what does it mean that it's not all in her head? That's obviously, uh, provably not all in her, in her head. Mm. I, I, you know, I think for me, what I love about this film is that the psychological and the supernatural exist in parallel, but also that they seem to be like matching, you know, mm-hmm. that Eleanor is the match, a match for the house with her, all of her guilt and all of her feelings of obligation and all of those things. And I, I feel like... There are ways in which the the happenings in the house feel like they're born from her. I think you could even, I don't know that this is necessarily a read that I find that interesting, but you could even theorize that she is causing them. You know, mm-hmm. like what what is she brought there for? She's brought there for this incident in her childhood where there were stones raining on her house for three days, right? One of the things that they're supposed to look for in this house is psychokinesis, which, right, it's like brought up as like one of the terms on the survey, um, the paperwork <laughs> yeah. that they're filling out. You know, I think you could give this the kind of Carrie-esque read if you wanted, that that in some ways, you know, she is causing this. They're like parts of her subconscious manifesting. But I think it's, it, you don't even need to answer that. I think that what works so well in the film is that it's like these horrors seem to kind of mirror her own pain. I question the the level of rigor of this particular academic study. Um, not, no offense, no offense, no offense to John, Dr. John Markway. Um, I think there's a thing too where there's a huge contrast in terms of the level of fear and level of emotional reaction that each of these characters have in contrast to Nell. I mean, I think that there's a consensus that this is this is a terrible place. It should be you know burned to ashes or whatever it is that Russ Tamblin says at the end of the movie. But nobody's reaction is quite like hers and it's almost as if that weird symbiosis between 
Nell and the house, it's almost like a relationship that develops throughout the film. Like as you were saying, finding a match, it's really about the house kind of kind of identifying who its person is and then making that person's experience different and more intense than everybody else's. I mean, just the the big example being, you know, that terrifying scene where she thinks that Theodora is holding her hand and squeezing it really tight and maybe breaking her <laughs> bones uh and then and then she turns on the light and theodore is all the way across the room you know nobody else nobody else gets that kind of treatment you know and the worst that the worst the rest of them have is the terrible rickety you know staircase which is just a rickety staircase it's just not right. it's a construction issue it's not a it's, it's not a haunting it just it, they just they really just need to bolt it a lot better yeah just, just to, double to bolt that thing and you're fine you can climb yeah. as much as much you want yeah it is there's kind of a, a dr vinkman-esque level of, of rigor as you say to, to their approach to this um, wow there's several different styles of acting going on in this film. Yes. Um, I think it works, but I mean, I mean, you have Richard Johnson bringing a very charming um, British theatricality uh, to it. Claire Bloom kind of doing something, something of the same. Russ Tamblin just kind of be a, a charming American movie star. And then Julie Harris doing this really intense method performance. And some of the background of the filming is interesting because apparently not unlike their characters, everyone else thought it was kind of a fun shoot and then while julie harris is like having this very intense emotional experience like uh crying on the set to get in character for this and like not socializing with anyone claire bloom tells a story about how you know harris brought her a gift at the end of performance because she said she could couldn't be her friend because they had she had to be in character so much i mean it is i mean you know that that stuff sometimes it matters sometimes it doesn't as, yeah. as scott loves it when we talk about uh extra textual stuff no as, it's fine as, it's fine I, no i just i just laugh because i i feel like this has become almost like a recent phenomenon that just all of this method stuff it seems now kind of dated and, ri- mm-hmm. and ridiculous and so and so when you hear stories of what you know, we watch a film like Jim and Andy or something and see what Jim Carrey did on that set. It's like, he was just a, a jerk. Right. <laughs> He's just being difficult. <laughs> he would have delivered, you know, a perfectly great performance, I'm sure, had he just, just studied the material and the character and, and delivered and been like a civil person to be around on the set. Uh, Scott, by that logic, Jared Leto would not have delivered an immortal performance as the Joker in Suicide Squad. So I don't know. Yeah, yeah. If you're not oh torturing God. your your colleagues, your your yeah. co-stars, then it doesn't count. Yeah, and I just think like, well, De Niro couldn't turn it off when he was, you know, Max Cady in Cape Fear. It's like, what's that? Doesn't sound great. What was it? Wesley Wesley Snipes on Blade, like insist, insisted oh, on saying Blade Three. That oh, was a different so story, good. though. I think that was because yeah. he just hated the director, right? And so and so he decided that he was going to act out. I think that yeah. that was that method performing. I think that was just, you know, him being difficult. Yeah, spite. Uh, that's too bad. classic think... to, a tool in the actor's uh, toolbox there, yes. spite. <laughs> I love the kind of split in the performances here because Julie Harris is, like, Eleanor is amongst these characters who are different degrees of sophisticates, right? You have this kind of suave professor indulging the hobby that his wife hates of, you know, the the paranormal, unserious study that he's doing. <laughs> yeah. You know, uh, Russ Hamlin's character is, yeah, like this kind of, all he can think about is how he's going to sell this gothic pile he's inherited for parts, right? Um, uh-huh. And then you have Claire Bloom's character who is, you know, dressed in these like Mary Quants, like mod fashion, 
questions, you know, as much as the film is willing to kind of say it explicitly, she's a lesbian, Mm -hmm. she's a psychic, but it's in a way that seems like very kind of like very cool, right? It's not, it's, she uses it for basically uh, acts of social cruelty, (laughs) Um, you know, and then in the middle, you have this character who like can't, who is so raw who actually can't really modulate her behavior very well. I think, like, we understand how much she's this kind of ticking time bomb psychologically before the other characters do. And part of the journey of the movie is them understanding actually how fragile she is. And I think, like, the different styles of acting really work in that way because she isn't like them, you know, and they slowly kind of become more and more concerned because of that. You know, I mean, you think about how movies sort of evolved i mean film acting evolved with a method school and with uh, you know with what kazan was doing and brando and one style went out another style went in this is a weird transitional moment to watch a film like this because of that contrast and i think that in almost any other context it wouldn't work you'd be like why does this person seem like they're acting in a completely different movie or era than these other characters but as you say this person is not like the other three and so it works and i don't know if it's accidental that it works or this was robert wise's master plan as a director to put somebody you know at the center of his movie who's not going to perform at all like the other three but it makes it makes sense it's part of what makes a film special I'm going to throw this without any sort of thoughts on my own, but how does this fit into Robert Wise's career? It's such an unusual, all-over-the-place career. Is there any kind of through line or any sort of like recurring theme that we can attach uh, The Haunting to? Well, mm. he directed he directed Star Trek, right? The motion picture. Sure. <laughs> okay. And then, and then there's, a line, there's a line in, in, in The Haunting where they talk about the house being an undiscovered country. Wasn't Star Trek V called... <laughs> the- or four? No, which six. One, which one, it's, one? It's, six? It's six. Was the yes. undiscovered no, I don't know. I, I mean, he he's somebody who is, who you know, you think about the look of this movie. It's quite similar to West Side Story, which he, he had co-directed. Also, very beautiful widescreen. Mm-hmm. Um, the setup, I don't know if you ever saw the setup. Really yeah, wonderful. It's a good one. Uh, noir, uh, about, uh, boxers. Yeah, it's uh, a also great movie. Yeah. Great, great, great. Uh, you know, again, b- black and white, great use. So I think also, maybe also widescreen, I'm not sure. But but he likes the big frame. And I think he also doesn't mind doing, a, you know, I mean, even like if you talk about even the, the first Star Trek, I mean, it's really about rendering a genre film with an unusual amount of patience and mm. and um it takes an unusual amount of patience effect. to watch it too so you know <laughs> it does it does i mean it, this is a little more rewarding but um but there's a deliberateness to this style that is that you know stands out in in what is uh, you know a you know a genre film i mean it's it's pretty classed up i guess for the genre well, his directorial career starts in horror too, with Curse of the Cat People for Val Luton, and then The Body Snatcher, oh, right. which I don't know if, yeah. which is one of the one of the it's a really good movie with Bela Lugosi and Boris Karloff. You get them both in that one, and the one of his the horror film is, is I haven't seen is Audrey Rose, which I know is a big a big one people like, but it's one I've never gotten around to. Has anyone else seen that one? I haven't. No. No. Yeah, no. no. Okay. Anyway, but yeah, I mean there is. I guess if there's a through line, it is just sort of the the professionalism to it. And there's sort of an intense psychology to a lot of his, his films as well. Um, but yeah, he's a tough one. to. He's, I mean, for as many great films as he directed, he's kind of tough to get a, a read on as a director, you know? 
Yeah. Well, that's a f- yeah. I mean, as I said before, I think that the Kane connection, I think, is there as well. Mm-hmm. The film that he, the film that he edited, uh, the the look of this movie, the feel, the feel of it, that the, the use of space is, I think, uh, pretty similar. And, and I think the visual, the uh, you know, his willingness to play with format. You know, West Side Story was a very striking use of of large format, and he, here mm-hmm. he's, uh, you know, attempting a fairly experimental, aggressive form of you know widescreen black and white. And that's another yeah. thing that marks it as kind of a, a transitional moment because it is, you know, he had a choice between color and black and white. Oh, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you, Allison. Go ahead. No, no. I guess I just, you know, it's it's so interesting to look over his filmography because it's like such a wild filmography and it like spans so many genres. And to have, you know, this film and then two for the seesaw in between like West Side Story and The Sound of Music, you know, <laughs> like that's just yeah. like a wild run of movies in like five years. But I think, you know, one of the things I really appreciate about this movie are also, you know, you point out that like there is willingness to kind of experiment. And I think I keep thinking about the shot in the beginning when we're running through the history of Hill House and the way the second wife dies, like the camera shows her point of view as she like falls down the stairs, you know, and there's mm. something about just that and then to kind of then pull back to have her like dead eyes staring up that uh you know i i think like there's this the way in which he lets the camera work kind of signal very early on that there is something i think kind of like untrustworthy about the perspective or at least subjective about the perspective that you're getting here you know and i think uh it's something that i just really appreciate about this film that's always kind of made it stand out to me so I want to go out with talking about the remake and, and the Netflix series and all that stuff. Is there anything else we should we should we should touch we should touch on before then? Sure, I would say for me, you know, I've said I like I remember the kind of psychological claustrophobia of this movie so much, but I also like the thing that I've always remembered is the real kind of like flinty, complicated exchanges between the characters, right? Mm. Like you have a character who uh, Eleanor has this flirtation with Dr. Markaway. Uh, it's one that's like very kind of like suave on his side, but also obviously deceptive. He's married. Uh, she understands that maybe she's making a fool of herself. She's also a character who, you know, I think like one of the things that, that doesn't kind of translate as well into the remake is that idea of this character as like sort of, you know, like an old maid a bit. She's someone who mm. is like aware of the fact that she's been frozen in time for this long stretch and is now suddenly like kind of craving romance and adventure but is also really afraid because she hasn't she's been shut away for so long and so suddenly she has these doses of that and Theo's kind of understanding of all of this like under like glimpses her much better than she wants to be seen and has like prone to bits of cruelty you know on occasion uh just to kind of provoke her those I think those exchanges are so well done those dynamics are so kind of complicated and shift so well and i that is a part of the movie that i that still impresses me you know going back and rewatching it i was just so kind of stunned by just like basically the the exchanges they have over meals you know over breakfast uh Uh are so terrific yeah i think you touch on something here which is like the fact that she has been um so isolated and so antisocial and then she's thrown in this situation where she can can be where she's around other adults and interacting with them. Her awkwardness in, in trying to navigate that is so profound, and it results in her kind of losing it a lot. Like she she snaps <laughs> she snaps at these people a lot. I mean, she really has trouble like controlling her emotions and her anger. And uh, you know, the film is very fraught, intense 
to watch uh, you know even if it had absolutely no horror in it whatsoever it would just kind of gnaw at you to watch this movie and it feels like theo didn't go into this wanting to be hostile toward her if anything she wanted he was kind of uh flirting with her uh, well actually not not even a little bit but once the the milk turns it turns really sour between those two characters yeah and i think that idea of like theo's extra perception you know whatever however real that is meant to be just seems to kind of speak to just her ability to kind of spot vulnerabilities in other characters uh and maybe see more than characters want to have seen of them can we give a shout out to mrs dudley (laughs) (laughs) we've got we've got we've gone this far without without appreciating the the oh, it's that so she, good it's so good it's the first the thing is like it's such a kind of a classic the first go around with nell is you know kind of this classic haunted house bit you know that she's giving it's like in the in the night in the in the dark <laughs> yes. um but then but then when she repeats it it becomes like this comic that the, the film recognizes there's something kind of just scripted about this whole thing and then she herself realizes it too and kind of kind of laughs when Nell kind of beats her to the, to her lines. I, I thought it's a great bit. It's a, yeah, the, both of those characters, husband, husband and wife, the characters, those are good bit characters. Yeah, they're so they're really good. And just a brief shout out to Lois Maxwell as uh, Mrs. Markway because she's Lois Maxwell, best known as Money Penny from the James Bond films. So it's good to see her uh, out of her natural environment. And, and uh, <laughs> I, enjoy, I think she, she's a lot of fun as well when she comes into the film later, later on. Yeah, definitely. Uh, we can't avoid talking about the afterlife of this. Um, <laughs> well, yeah. you know, I, I haven't seen it. I have actually haven't watched the Netflix series yet. I want to. And what I I saw a little bit of it, I can tell is it's not in any way the same story as The Haunting of Hill House. And I, I do like Mike Flanagan, generally speaking. So I have to check that out. Has anyone else seen the Netflix series? No. No, I haven't. Yeah. Uh, well, I have. it, it, what's Is the word that it, in terms of fidelity to the book, is it? Oh, is no. It, supposed to it, be? it goes. It's. It's not not at all. I think it's it's kind of using. It's like Fargo. It's like yeah. Fargo, uh, the TV series, as it is to the movie. Is the sixty three version? So it's pretty. No, no, no. Uh, the sixty three film is fairly faithful to the book. It, it trims oh, okay. it back a little. Yeah. Um, but the uh, Netflix series is, is as she's saying, is like Fargo. It's, it's kind of using the, using the the book as a jumping off point. Um, oh, I see. I, I have read the book, which is which is quite good and uh, highly recommend it. I can't recommend something I think we've all seen, which is the nineteen ninety nine <laughs> remake. Yes. Um, let me let me give it this much though. If you are casting this film in nineteen ninety nine, you have the perfect cast. I mean, uh, Liam Neeson as as the Doctor, Lily. Taylor as as Nell, uh, Catherine Zeta-Jones as Theo, and Owen Wilson in the Russ Tamlin role. That, that's and there's no one else kicking around Hollywood in 1999 that would be better suited for those parts, right? <laughs> no, it's a pretty good uh, replica, even if they're all playing such kind of amusingly outsized caricatures of the original characters. That as soon as they come on, they're all funny. Yeah, I haven't. I have not seen it since it came out, uh, no, but why, I do why would, remember. Why would you? I do remember it. I do certainly remember thinking like, "This is just bad." <laughs> remakes get, and I, you know, <laughs> and I think there was kind of some a certain amount of anticipation because Yanda Vaughn had done Speed, which mm-hmm. everyone felt mm-hmm. good about a couple of years before. As well, you some say, people the, like the, Twister. I'm, I'm, I was never there. Oh, that's but, right, uh, Twister. Right, yeah. Twister was even after Speed. Speed would have been ninety five, s- and then ninety seven would have been Twister, right, or ninety eight. No, no, ninety six is Twister. Ninety seven, he had a film out called Speed Two: Cruise Control. Oh, oh okay. yeah. <laughs> why do you think that he that somebody else had taken the taken? Yeah, the, 
the steering wheel on that. What do you what what, what do you use the ship? Know. What do they call a steering on a cruise ship? Oh. What's a, what's taking the reins on a cruise ship? I don't know. But yeah. I basically um, remember the '99 version mostly as well. Obviously, a huge disappointment because I was looking forward to it, given uh-huh. given the talent involved. But also, it it just goes in a complete opposite direction with this, just being all special effects, all like sort of super digitally, you know, manifestations <laughs> of the supernatural, which, I, just, which I'm sure just hold up great now right <laughs> like, like early oh, like early i think they not... looked bad then they yeah, like no, at the time they were like criticized yeah 1999's finest cgi it's also just you know you have this movie that is all about not showing you anything and also about mm-hmm. just like teasing like how much the supernatural is actually at play here and then you dive into this movie that's like Yes, there are ghosts. Mostly, you know, they like are swimming around in your sheets and then uh, look like also like the generic kind of like evil spirit that I think was in a bunch of movies at that time. And at the same time, people are going to spend most of the movie telling Eleanor that she's crazy because she is the only one who sees them. So you both have like these terrible ghosts and also like the most annoying part and one of the things that the original haunting like thankfully skips because it's the reason they're all there which is people being like i know you just saw this terrifying thing but it's in your head like you just made it up um it's maddening to watch (laughs) uh i'll have to revisit right yeah (laughs) sure yes For what it's worth, it won none of the Golden Raspberry Awards for which it was nominated, but it won Worst Picture at the Stinkers Bad Movie Awards. So, Mm. you know, there is, it did, it did. I don't remember. I don't know the Stinkers Bad Movie Awards. Yeah, I'm not sure. They're the knockoff Razzies? Uh, I I will say one of the things that's funny funny about the movie. There's a sad group of words there. (laughs) Um, as, as, As someone who's watched this relatively recently, one of the things I really, I thought was funny is that there's like a really great split diopter shot in the original Haunting. Mm-hmm. Where Eleanor is like in the front like of the screen mm. and she's kind of monologuing and doesn't realize like Theo is like moving behind her and like kind of is, is so in her own world. And then there are like kind of a few references to uh, that kind of shot in this movie and a movie that otherwise stylistically is just looks like, you know, a totally anonymous uh, kind of cruddy 90s blockbuster ish thing. And they're just so jarring because you're like, no one's been thinking about visuals in this way up to like, what is happening? <laughs> yeah, that, sh- that shot's very Citizen Kane like in, in, in mm-hmm. some respects. So yeah, there is a there's a through line there. Well, there's more to talk about with The Haunting, the 1963 version, not, not the 1999 version. We will talk about it in our next episode in conjunction with Shirley. In the meantime, we're going to take a very short break and come back with feedback. Now it's time for feedback, when our listeners weigh in with their responses to recent episodes and anything else in the world of film. First up, we received some feedback about Almost Famous, Scott can you share that? Uh, sure. Corinne writes, I always feel like I'm taking crazy pills when Almost Famous comes up, but never more so when the deflowering scene is mentioned without a hint of alarm or reflection. It's been a long time since I've seen it, I admit, but I remember being completely grossed out. Audiences would be outraged if the genders were flipped, right? Just me, yet again? All right, let's throw Allison to the deep, more, uh, deep end here. What do you think about the... the all right, we'll... we'll, we'll. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, can I just say, I don't know how old, like, most of the other characters in that scene are supposed to be. I know that he's, what, 15? Yeah. <laughs> yes. But and I feel I like the ages, they're all meant to be teenagers, right? So I feel like, I don't know. 
I, Who knows? Yeah, I, I kind of don't give it much thought, I guess. And and I, I guess we'd be outraged if the genders would flip, but it just, I don't know. Uh, yeah, the, I mean, I, he I, seems pretty psyched to be there. No, and they're fine. Everyone's fine. It's just, it, you does. know. He kind of does and kind of doesn't, though. Yeah. I mean, it almost, it's almost something that he's just kind of like being, um, you know, kind of, you know, whisked along into rather than choosing to actively uh, seek out. You know, I think there's a little mm. more, in the film's defense, I think there's a little more ambiguity there. But it, also the best defense, though, is like, you know, they're all 15, 16 year olds traveling around having sex with rock stars. So whatever, you know, it's yeah, to me, the heart of it really that scene is a lot of it is about him looking at Penny, though, right? Who's kind of arranged this thing because she she's the one that he cares about. I mean, not to say that he's he's going to not go through with go through with this, you know, because it's a whatever a boring rainy day on the road. But I mean, I feel like that's kind of the central part of the scene. And I just, I, I guess I just don't share uh, Corinne's concern about this as kind of a gross scene or a, or a violation of any kind. But um, maybe others do. I think if you're do. not on board with the movie at that point, you're not going to be on board with that scene. And that might be uh, the thing here. And this is definitely a movie that, that, that the more you talk to people about it, it's just not for everyone. Not everyone is charmed by, by this film. I think some people are put off by it, which I, uh, which I totally get. Yeah, well, I mean, I think, you know, the the whole basic concept and what's happening to these characters, certainly from a 2020 perspective, uh, there's a lot of things about it uh, that are not great. But then, of course, it is supposed to be about this particular era, and this is what it was, this is what happened. Um, mm-hmm. So I think it's him putting, presumably, some variation of his own experience with regard to that scene on screen with all of its complications. Yeah, and, and certainly the relationship between Billy Crudup and Kate Hudson in the movie is, I mean, if that's that's a lot, a lot more dis- disturbing. Disturbing, me, sure, absolutely. Me, in terms of in terms of age difference, in terms of power dynamics, and I mean that that's in exploitation. I mean that that really is something that's again baked into the film. Part of what the you know, it's not like the film is unaware of that either. But um, the scene that Corinne cited, you know, doesn't bother me. But but maybe it bothers other listeners of the show. This seems like the type of feedback that will lead to more feedback. So please yeah. write in. Uh, we'll keep this conversation going to an uncomfortable extreme. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah. One detail from Almost Famous dragged over dragged over several shows. And now another letter about one scene in Almost Famous. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, we also received some feedback about an older episode, which is totally fine. We like it when people are catching up and, and write in. Uh, Allison, uh, would you mind reading that one, even though you're a guest? Oh, it'd be my, my pleasure. All right, Meg writes, I wanted to comment on the scene in 1917 when Schofield runs into the woman. On one hand, I can definitely relate to Genevieve's reaction that we could have done without her. The scene feels very different from the rest of the movie, and I couldn't help but think of it as checking a box on the list of World War I cliches. Even Snoopy comes across a girl at a French farmhouse when he's shot down by the Red Baron. A little potato soup and I will be on my way. Mm-hmm. The symbolism of what Schofield's doing is obvious when he gives the pair all the food he was given for his journey, plus the milk he conveniently took from the farmhouse that's still fresh, thinking that one way or another he won't need them anymore. But in the end, I wound up liking the scene, and I think what made it work for me was the emphasis on the fact that this was not that girl's baby. 
The movie is about what men do in wars like this, what they're expected to step up and do. Knowing that the girl isn't related to the baby she's caring for, for me, turned her from a symbol of the woman, children, home, family that Schofield was protecting into another example of camaraderie and duty on the battlefield in the form of a young woman who took responsibility for caring for an orphan baby in terrible conditions. Women as caregivers to men and children is a sexist stereotype, of course, but in context, she came across less as an angel of the hearth and more as another soldier doing what had to be done, picking up the slack when someone else fell. That detail made her feel less like a symbol who existed only to interact briefly with Schofield and more like a person with her own story whose path happened to briefly cross with his. One who, unlike the soldiers he meets, is alone with her responsibility just as he is. I like that. I think that's a pretty good reading of that, of that moment. Yeah, no, it, it's, a, it's a nice scene uh, it, for all the reasons that make mentions. It gives, it gives the film a little bit of much needed uh, color or i guess another another look i mean because you know it's such a simple movie it's such a simple journey in ter- you know the, that these uh men have to take um so when you kind of it almost becomes it's almost like kind of a road movie moment right when you you know you're in a road movie you're going from point a to point b and, and then you you have these little episodes it stops along the way and this is kind of one of those you know one of the more vivid of those episodes that are, that's in the movie yeah, I, I, you know, it's a scene that for me, it felt so kind of like still like this moment where you're like, we need a quiet moment in the movie. He's been doing an awful lot of running, like we need mm-hmm. modulation. Uh, that said, I think this is a very, it's a smart take on it. And I did appreciate as well that she was not like a young mother hiding with her baby, but someone who was, you know, taking care of this child who was not hers and was just, you know, trying to survive. And I think the kind of the way she had carved out that space, that like little bit of like a kind of hominess. I think there was something about that that did suggest a whole story that we're obviously not going to get that. Uh, and I appreciated that there was some texture there and a bit of depth. And yeah. obviously after the war's over, he goes back and they become friends, right? They get married, yeah. right? That's no, those already, are the rules. Those are the rules. Oh, no, he's uh, already married though. That would, right, that would right. not, not work. Mm-hmm. Uh, all right. Well, we always appreciate when our listeners share their thoughts and their recommendations. If you feel so inclined, we can feature your response on a future episode. To reach us, you can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730, which no one ever does. Call us or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. <laughs> That's it for this episode of The Next Picture Show. In our next episode, we'll return to Shirley Jackson territory via Shirley. Look for that episode next Tuesday or, better yet, subscribe to The Next Picture Show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcatcher of choice. Even better still, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. Find us at nextpictureshow.net, follow us at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow, and follow us on Twitter at at nextpicturepod, so you'll always know when a new episode drops. Until then, remember... If you find yourself holding the hand of someone in the dark, please take a moment to make sure it's a human hand.